all over the Roman Empire. And Nero was upset. He, he didn't like that there was a new movement going on in Rome. There was this birth of a new religion called Christianity. And so he was angry because according to the way that the Romans uh, emperors uh, uh, existed, they were supposed to be worshipped as God. They represented God on earth. And, and now there was this new group of people who were stealing worship and honor from the emperor. And, and Nero didn't like it. So he had begun to throw uh, these Christians into prison and especially the Christian leaders. And, and the way history tells it, there was a, a, a terrible fire in Rome. And, and what Nero did was he blamed the Christians for this fire. As an old man, the apostle Paul was arrested and thrown into a dungeon and, and there he was kept where Nero thought he would be safe from uh, any tampering that Paul might want to do. No more speaking, no more preaching. Paul would be locked away. And so in order to try and get Paul to, to, to rescind his beliefs publicly in front of the dignitaries from all over the empire, uh, Nero drags Paul in front of this court. Roman soldiers whispers to, whisper to Paul, unless you recant what you believe, unless you take back your belief in this Jesus Christ, unless you step away from it, old man, you will surely die. I think you can see in your mind as Paul makes his way slowly up the stairs to whatever podium might have been in that hall. As he stands before it and the dignitaries are almost on the edge of their seats. They've heard so much about the miracle working of Paul and of Jesus Christ. And they're, they're curious as to what this man, this old and feeble man might say. And so as he stands there at this podium, they expect that he will rescind. He'll, he'll, he'll retract everything he's, he's ever said. But, but many of the great, uh, uh, historians of, of the Christian era and, and one of my favorite Bible commentaries says that Paul stands there and preaches one of the most powerful sermons he ever preached. So powerful is the sermon that that as Paul preaches this word, uh, uh, even some of the dignitaries who have come to see him uh, re recant what he believes and, and to retract his statements, many of them are moved by the Holy Spirit and begin to accept Jesus Christ as their savior. Even some of the hardened Roman soldiers, our hearts are softened by the word of Paul and, and Nero and his and his and his and his and his, uh, and his dignitaries who are still angry at the Christian world uh, become become only more furious now. And with the word that Paul has spoken, according to the soldiers, he has sealed his fate. He is going to be put to death. They take him back through those streets and back towards that dungeon and throw him down into that dungeon. And, and I can imagine that as he is laying there, some uh, kind-hearted soldier sneaks in and, and asks him, you know, you're in trouble, you, you might die soon. Is there anything you want before you die? And I can just hear Paul not asking for a fancy meal or not asking for entertainment or any pleasure, but I can almost hear him asking for just a pen and, and, and paper to write on. And Paul, knowing that his time on earth is short, laying on the floor of a dirty Roman dungeon with all of the foul smell and foul sounds that go on in there, Paul begins to take pen to paper and begins to write his last letter. 
That letter is the book of Second Timothy. I call it a message to the last generation. Paul begins to write because he understands that if he is taken off of the scene, he must pass on certain pieces of, of, of valuable truth on to the next generation of Christian leaders. And so Paul now with, with, with earnest uh, fire and passion begins to pen to Timothy who represents the next generation who, who in Paul's mind might well be the last generation. So ironically, as Paul is writing to Timothy, he's writing to us. Because Paul wrote this letter for those who would be on the planet just before Jesus would come. So he starts in 2 Timothy. In chapter 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of, of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. He starts accepting promises. To Timothy, my dear, my dearly beloved one, son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our, our Lord. And look at verse 3. He says, I thank God. Here is Paul in a dungeon. Dirty floors and foul smells. He, he doesn't start by complaining about his condition. Instead, he begins by claiming the promises of God. Instead, he begins by thanking God. Oh, what kind of Christians would we be if when life reared its ugly moments and, and when all of the difficulties that come upon us come, were to come in, upon us into our lives rather than being complainers and murmurers. Imagine if even in the most difficult situations we claimed God's promises. Imagine if in that situation we, we began to thank God for our difficulties. He thanks God. He says, whom I have served from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. It says in verse 5, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that is in thee also. Paul speaks of something powerful here. He speaks of a legacy of faith. He speaks of a heritage of holiness. I want to submit to you that many of us who have been raised knowing about Jesus, who, who have a knowledge of God and, and were, were raised going to church and, and back away, we, we run away sometimes, we, we try so hard to avoid God, what we don't understand is that we then break this legacy chain. And if it wasn't, as Paul says, he was praying for Timothy, if it wasn't for the fact that someone was praying for many of us, where would we be today? I can tell you that I, I, I didn't grow up on the good side of anybody's tracks. My mother was a single mother and my father was very absent. And I can tell you that there were times when as a teenager in 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 in. Uh, various stages of rebellion, I would decide to go somewhere with my friends. And, and I can remember times when I snuck off and went to rap concerts and, and, and my mother had no idea. She would never have allowed such a thing. And, and I snuck off and went. And I can remember times when, when, when guns were pulled out and people began to fire recklessly into the crowd and anybody could have been hit by the bullets. Yet never. 
when when gangs were chasing me, when 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 I would get into the worst types of trouble. Never was I even scratched, even though others around me sometimes were killed. And I'm telling you that that happened because I had a grandmother and a mother and and aunts and church family who were praying for me. I submit to you that there are those who are in open rebellion against God, whom if we, the church, or who who believe, don't pray for them, if we are not lifting them up in prayer, if we are not calling on God's name for them, we do not give them opportunity for protection. Did you know that when you pray for someone, you open a channel, an avenue, like a door is opened through which God can now work in that person's life? Did you know that if you neglect to pray for those who you know are, are in rebellion or who have fallen away or, or are, who are going through a severe trouble like in our times like divorce or there are many who are wrestling even with homosexuality and, and with promiscuity and with drug addiction. I, I want to submit to you that, that it is our, not simply our duty and responsibility, it is our privilege and honor to lift their names up in prayer. Never forget the legacy of faith, that heritage of holiness. Those members of your family that 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 wanted you to be uh, first and foremost raised to be a Christian more than to be wealthy or famous. Paul goes on in verse seven of of chapter one and writes one of my favorite Bible verses, one that I, I quote very often, even in practice, as I see patience. Paul says in verse seven, he says, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear. But of power and of love and of a sound mind. We live in frightening times. I submit to you that this is a very dangerous time to be on planet Earth for so many different reasons. If you're one who travels into the developing world and around the world, you know that crime rates in some countries are astronomical. And even here in our own area, right here in San Bernardino County, go back and check the murder rate. How many have been killed since just January 1st? You'd be shocked. We live in a dangerous time. We are under the threat of of, of international terrorists now. Every now and then CNN gives us these words that, that Bush releases that, that the terrorists had planned to blow up the, the, the highest tower downtown Los Angeles. And so we have this fear coming from all sides. Will we be carjacked? Will we, will we be robbed? Will terrorists get us? Will there be a terrible earthquake or, or hurricane? And, and we live in a time when people are so anxious and afraid of even their own shadows. So that the sales of Prozac and, and all of the other SSRI drugs are, are going through the roof as people turn to pharmaceuticals to try and calm their nerves. But I submit to you that God has not given us a spirit of fear. God has not called you out of the darkness of this world to walk in trembling and fear. God has called you out of the darkness of this world to understand that he has dispatched special angels and given them charge over you. That not even your foot would hit the stone, David says. 
We don't have to live in fear. You don't have to constantly walk around worrying that that some terrible thing is going to happen. Instead, like Paul, you've got to put your trust in God. Not a spirit of fear. You see, fear is the opposite of love. You see, God is love. The opposite of love isn't really hate. It's fear. For perfect love does what? It casts out all fear. So if you're living in fear, if you're worried about about what is going on around you, then then you're really not living in the spirit of God. But he's given us power and love and a sound mind. I pray God that we accept the sound mind. You know, I, I speak a lot to young people and I don't know if many of you are aware of the drug problem that is really running through our nation. And it's not an urban problem anymore. It's not an inner city problem. This is a, a problem that reaches to suburbia. It reaches to, to, to all of the aspects and angles, all of the small towns of the United States. Crystal methamphetamines now is, 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 is running rampant in our communities here just locally. But if you look across the country, one of the drugs that has become very accepted and acceptable is marijuana. Young people are smoking marijuana at astronomical rates. And, and there are studies that I've read that says that the, the marijuana that is smoked today is sometimes six and seven and sometimes ten times stronger than the marijuana that was smoked in the 60s and 70s. Because you've got these guys now genetically engineering marijuana. So we have a drug epidemic that is homegrown. And, and I'm going to Birmingham next week to do a whole weekend on the effects of hip hop music and rap music on our youth. And, and I can tell you that the rap artists are, are, are being used as the pawns of Satan to encourage and, and, and uh, young people to smoke marijuana and to drink alcohol and, and to have reckless abandon for their lives. God has given you a sound mind. One of my favorite texts is Solomon says, wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereof is unwise. And as Christians, it is wise to keep your mind focused and working sharp and well. Because you see, salvation is an intellectual process. That's why in Isaiah 1 and verse 18, the Bible says, come, let us reason together though your sins be as scarlet they'll be as white as snow that's why in ephesians 6 paul says take on the helmet of salvation salvation is a supratentorial it is an intellectual process so the devil knows that if he can get you to be high enough or drunk enough or or messed up enough not just drunk with alcohol or drugs but just drunk off of the allurements of the world if he can get you all mixed up so that you lose your focus, uh, uh, he can mess with your ability to accept salvation. So the scripture says, be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary, the devil, like a roaming lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. God hasn't given you fear, he's given you a sound mind. We ought to defend and protect that sound mind. But Paul, of course, keeps going. He, he, he's now speaking to Timothy. He, he's trying to level this thing. He knows that Timothy is going to go through some hard times. He knows that that persecution will be a part of what happens to the Christians as time goes on. Paul knows that even as Nero has captured him and is doing this to him, he knows that the Roman authorities will continue to do this. So in chapter 2 and verse 3, 
he gives Paul some very powerful advice. He says, thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I like that. You see, because we haven't been called to, 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 to be Christians. We haven't been called to God to, to simply sit and be spectators. Christianity is not a spectator sport. You've been called to be a soldier. That you haven't been called to just sit back and, and, and you know, and, and play bridge uh, uh, once a weekend with your church brethren and, and have a good time. We're not called to simply come together and sing. We have been called by God to engage in battle. You are a soldier of the cross. God has called you now to duty. You've enlisted in the heavenly regimen. You've enlisted in God's army and, and you're a soldier. And, and one thing about being a soldier is that you're going to have to fight. The problem with many soldiers is that church has become the only place that they fight. The church is supposed to be the barracks. Here is where we should come to be strengthened and nourished washed and clean so that we can go back into the battlefield for God. But it seems as if the only gunshots you hear among Christians happens inside the barracks. Endure hardness. You see, we're going to go through some tough things as Christians. I submit to you that very difficult things will happen when we become Christians. And it varies on what will happen. I lost my mother last November and She was such a God-fearing person. The only reason I have any of the credentials I have today or that I'm even still in the church at all is because of what she showed me, how she lived. Not just that she told me what to do, the example that she set. And and to have to sit there and watch her die as many other members of the family began to reject God in the process. Angry at God. How could God allow her to go like this? soldier you understand that there are going to be casualties you're a soldier you understand that there will be collateral damage in this war you understand that when god allows one of his to be taken god has prepared a special place for them if you're going to be a soldier there's going to be some hard times there's going to be divorces there are going to be children who just don't want to go right There are going to be financial problems. The IRS might come looking for you. Things might not go as you would want them to, but as soldiers, you learn to endure hardness. You go through it. You you are strengthened by it. You stop asking God to move mountains and start, as the old Negro spiritual says, start asking him to give you the strength to climb mountains. No man that in war, verse 4 says, entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Don't get too mixed up in this world. I hear people at the hospital having arguments over the weirdest things. Obviously, football. You you know, you get this big fight over who's going to win the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl is over. They start fighting. Who's going to win the NCAA basketball championship? That's over. Who's going to win the the NBA? Entangled in the things of this world. Passionate arguments on either side. Who's going to be the next president of the United States? Republicans or Democrats? Is the left right or is the right right? Entangled in the things of this world. So caught up in what is so temporary. 
We don't realize sometimes as I look out of the window of my house onto the beautiful valleys of Southern California, I, I, I run through my mind the scenes portrayed in the book of Daniel and Revelation and realize that one day all of this will be rubble. If this is also temporary, why are we so caught up in it? Don't be entangled too much with the affairs of this world. Now you have to occupy till he comes. Yes, we ought to work and, and better ourselves and think and learn and build and do what God would have us to do. But, but don't be so t- caught up in this world. I like as one Bible commentary says that we ought to wear this world like a loose garment. The time comes and Jesus returns. We ought to be able to just slip this world off. And move on. Don't be entangled Timothy is what Paul is saying. Don't get too caught up. All that you see around you is just temporary. Verse 20, he says to Timothy, but in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every Good work. Most Bible commentaries agree that the great house here is the church. And that everybody who comes to church, here's a, here's a, here's a thing for you. Everybody who comes to church is not true blue. There are those who come to church that are gold and silver, but, 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 but in, in, in modern vernacular, there are some who come to, to church and are Tupperware. There are some who come whose their agenda isn't really the benefiting of God's church. There are those who come to church looking for a platform on which to perform. A place just to exercise uh, uh, their selfishness. There are those who are are, are double agents who come to church. They're, They're actually working for the enemy and they're planted in the house of God. So we think that sometimes when things go so terribly wrong in church that that is just people. But we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So one of the first lessons you've got to learn about being a Christian and going to church, one of the first and most important lessons to learn is that there are imperfect people in church. I can tell you that I've seen when I was growing up, times when young people especially were, were, were really uh, treated harshly. We were so cold and so, so even fanatical at times with how we, tr- we treated them. And, and young people who made mistakes especially, who, who maybe have went to jail or girls who got pregnant and the church would come down so hard on them. And there were individuals in church who would just be so mean and nobody would, would really open up their arms in love. And those young people would see those few individuals in church and would leave the church forever. Paul warns Timothy, do not allow people inside of church to drive you out of church. For you see, the people in church have no heaven or hell to put you in. We must remember that God has called each of us to become pure. That's why Paul says, if you purge yourself from these, you will be a vessel that God can use. I want to be a vessel. I want to be made out of something that God can pour his spirit into. I want to become a pitcher that God can fill with his spirit and when he needs to grab me by the handle and pour out his spirit where he needs to. I want to be a vessel of honor. 
I want to be a soldier that that God can say, you need to be moved to this location on the planet and serve me. And there's no murmuring, no rumbling. God says, go, I pack and I go. Verse 22 is powerful, especially for college students. Where it says, flee also youthful lusts. We live in a over-sexualized society. Nothing comes on television now that doesn't have some strong sexual innuendo. As a matter of fact, I think they've given up on even the innuendo part of it. It's just strong sexually. You have to be careful what your children watch. You've got to be careful what you watch. All kinds of hidden uh, alternative lifestyle agendas are mixed into the shows. And you're sitting there thinking you're watching a, a basketball game. And next thing you know, you got Dennis Rodman in a wedding dress. But Paul says that even in the climate of the last days, when everything will sim- seem to simply be re- reduced to, to sex and being sexy. You know, everybody wants to be sexy now. Everybody, the plastic surgeons are making a fortune. Tucking faces and bellies and thighs and butts and cheeks and backs. I mean, they're doing operations on stuff I didn't think people even thought about. Everybody wants to be sexy now, even in the church. What do you world are you coming to church sexy for? Why in church? Oh, come on. I mean, give at least give God a break. Give us a break. Amen. Why are you coming to church sexy for? You even got television preachers in muscle shirts flexing their muscles. But Paul says, look, you've got to flee youthful lusts. At some point, you've got to grow and and mature and, and have control over yourself. And I know you can't really control yourself, but that's why you need the spirit of God working in you. Flee it. 13-year-old girl this weekend in urgent care, pregnant. 13. She's still playing with dolls. And I can tell you story after story after story of, 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 of uh, we saw one boy this week, 12 years old, who, who was uh, involved in homosexual acts with older boys and even children, little, little children. We have to write up and send a report to the police. The devil has gotten us like he had Sodom and Gomorrah. He's gotten this place so it's out of control. Wrong is right and right is wrong. Speaking at the, I was a keynote speaker for Riverside County. They had um, HIV AIDS, a conference out at the Morongo Casino. You figure that one out. Casino is where we have an AIDS conference. And so... I mentioned, I talked about being a good husband and the need for men to be faithful to their wives and, and for men to be role models to their sons. And would you know I was attacked because of it? There were those who said, how dare you say that? To a man is not needed to be a model for a son. Why, two women can be lovers and raise a son just fine. Flee also. Youthful. Follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace 
with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Oh, what would happen today if in America we started to raise up standards for pure hearts again? What would happen if in America today we, we stopped just calling anything right? Verse 23, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid knowing that they do engender strifes. It's funny because the youth also have to wrestle today, this last generation, they have to wrestle with the idea that evolution has become the order of the day. It's just accepted. No challenge. Even in the courts, they want to teach now intelligent design, which is really a compromise on true creationism. They want to at least instill the idea that maybe there was a divine architect that designed all of this. And the courts systematically seem to just be shooting it down. Yet the doctrine, the religion of evolution is accepted. Avoid foolish questions. Paul says in chapter 3 and verse 1, this know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come. Perilous times will come. Times will come when nations will be so indebted to other nations and to the IMF and the World Bank that their own citizens, because of the corruption of their leaders, will be left to starve to death and have no health care. Malaria, which could be solved with just a few simple public health steps, would cause the death of countless thousands every year in Africa. Perilous times would come when wars would be fought over land and oil. And eventually now they're predicting that the next great set of wars will be fought over clean drinking water. Perilous times will come when crime and debauchery, when when man will begin to elevate himself in his mind so highly that he will think that man can solve all of Earth's problems. Perilous times would come when children are snatched out of their homes and off of the streets by sexual predators. Perilous times will come in the last days. You don't even have to be that old. The world is changing that fast that you are seeing things today that you would never have believed would would happen on planet Earth. For men shall be lovers of of their own selves in verse 2 of chapter 3. Covetous, boasters. Men would be proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, False accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Traitors, heady, high-minded, and here's the kicker, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Powerful. Did you know that the average Christian in America spends six times more money a year on entertainment than they give to their local church? We have become lovers of pleasure. We, we want to just have a good time all the time. And God's got to fit himself into that schedule. We want to be entertained. Bring out the dancing girls and, and bring out the lights and, and bring out the instruments. And entertain us. We forget sometimes that the devil was the choir director in heaven. Ezekiel says he was made with special pipes and tablets that that music he can use to, to move and manipulate even a third of the angels of heaven. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. 
How many people walk away from God because they say that he is boring? Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Paul says to Timothy and to us from such, turn away. Having a form of godliness. You mean in the last days there will be people who have the form of godliness that appear godly from the outside? But deny the power. What is the power? What is this power of God? It is the power to sanctify you. The Bible says that when you have received the Holy Spirit, he will do what? He would lead you into all truth. The power of God, when it begins to work in you, leads you towards truth. It it leads you to Bible-based truth, not men's opinions. When God's spirit comes upon you and and you have the hope of the second coming, as the Bible says, you're purified. You begin to see your unworthiness. But I'm telling you, they're preaching a different gospel today. They're preaching a gospel of prosperity. Olson, the pastor of that giant church in Texas, the largest church in the country and being interviewed by on CNN by um, what's his name there? Uh, Larry King, there he is, interviewed on national television. And they ask, and Larry King, after hearing his whole spiel about his church and how, uh, the key word being seeker-friendly the church is, how fuzzy and soft it is, he says to him, he says, "Uh, Pastor, what do you preach against sin? The pastor responds, I don't deal with sin. What? A pastor? Who doesn't deal with sin? That's like an electrician who doesn't deal with power. It's like a doctor who doesn't use medicine or treat disease. It's like a doctor who says, come on in. I don't care how bad your cancer or your diabetes. Don't worry about it. Have some Vicodin and Ativan. Feel good about yourself. Don't worry that you're going to be dead in just a little while. Having a form of godliness. They brag about the tens of thousands who who sit in their churches and the tens of thousands and millions who watch on television. But if you're not dealing with what God would have you to deal with, what is the purpose? As Paul says, it is as a sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. How purposeless to have churches where all you're trying to do is make People feel fuzzy and warm. I was speaking at a, I spoke for Wednesday night at my church just a few weeks ago, and I was speaking about, we were talking about speaking in tongues, and I was laying out that, you know, the speaking in tongues, you know, this thing is getting really popular now. Even the popular gospel songs, if you listen to them, there's somebody in the background, Shamalama, Hum, Shamala, Wah, 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 Shamalu. And I did that, and people laughed, and this girl came up to me and said, You're too harsh. You ought not do that. Somebody in there might believe in it. I said, I want to let you know something. The truth ought to make you uncomfortable. If you come to church every time and never feel a prick, you never feel anything. Every time you come to church, you can just sit through it and and go home feeling all the better about yourself. Something's wrong with your church. The Bible, Paul, even in this book, says that God's word is for reproof. It's for instruction. You you don't come here to figure out how to clear your debt. 
This isn't a place that, you know, they have those seminars on how to improve your credit scores. Conferences, church conferences, and charge people money. You know what I tell them? Take the $700 for the conference, your travel expenses, and put it on your visa. That's a novel idea. Having a form of godliness. Everything is for sale now. I saw I was in GNC the other day and I saw where even uh, uh, someone or many of us probably love uh, 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 the, the head of, uh, um, of the, of the, of the of, of family, what is it, uh, Dobson. James Dobson had a, had a weight loss milkshake can in the GNC. The church is for sale. But nobody will really talk about living right. Nobody wants to talk about victory over sin. Nobody wants to talk about emptying yourself of self and following Christ Jesus with every fiber that is in you. Making yourself accessible to the Holy Spirit in such a way that when God's spirit falls on you, it fills you. And and the love of Christ, the Bible says, begins to constrain you. Nobody wants to talk about that anymore. That's unpopular. We're going to insult someone. Someone's not going to be happy if we tell them they can't just do whatever they want and be Christians. Having a form of God, that's one of the key things that Paul mentions as being a mark of the end time. That the church would become hollow. An empty version of what she once was. A church would become more of a social club, more of a, of a status symbol then it would be a place where sinners are brought in and, and washed by the blood and not just washed their sins away, but they get a blood transfusion and leave out with the power to live right. That's the church used to be about. You go back 140, 150 years, starting with Martin Luther and coming forward. Men like Spurgeons, and, and as you come down and you look at a Tinsdale and all of these other great men, when you read what they believed and, and how they fought Calvin, they, they, they wanted you to get power from God. We've dashed that away. You want power from the bank. You want power from, from popularity. It says in verse 13 of chapter 3, but evil men and seducers shall wax Worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Verse 6, he capitalizes on this. He says, for this of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins. Led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Did you know that they're creeping into houses? Through cable and Satellite radio. There are those who, unless Oprah Winfrey says it, it's not true. I submit to you that Oprah, with all her success, deserves whatever respect she gets from the world. But as Christians, we ought to pattern our steps after Christ. Verse 16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. 
and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. I submit to you that the reason we ought to join a church is, is not because of, of who goes to that church or how popular, how, how well the music is played or how well the preacher preaches, but, but what defines your church in terms of doctrine? You're giving up on doctrine. I don't know if you know, doctrines now are, 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 are multiple choice at most churches. I was talking to one lady and she was telling me, well, at our church, you, you have a choice. You can be pre-millennial, millennial, or post-millennial. I said, so, I mean, what do you mean? Some of your church is going to disappear in the, you know, your secret raptures happen in all three. Whatever happened to the sure word of God? The Bible says that Jesus is coming again. And that it is a surety that Christ will return. And that every eye will see him. That the trump of God will sound. What is this multiple choice millennialism? I've had enough multiple choice taking standardized exams. I want when it comes to God and his return it to be etched in the Bible and, and, and written in the stone of his word. Paul says in chapter 4, I charge thee therefore. Before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead and at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. The time will come when you won't be allowed to be the pastor in the church unless you preach what the people want to hear. Juanita Bynum, who calls herself a prophetess, spoke on TBN. I don't know if you all keep track of all of these figures, but there's a whole constellation of television preachers and prophets and apostles and bishops and kind of like a chess game on TV. She spoke something and, and it was taken negatively by, by uh, T.D. Jakes, who was the bishop of another very large church in Texas. And T.D. Jakes, as it came out, sent out the word that no church in America should allow her to speak until she has apologized to him. And they showed on TBN her on her knees in front of T.D. Jakes begging his forgiveness. They will bring to themselves teachers having itching ears. Following people who don't even know God. I submit to you that this is the time when you and your Bible ought to be very well acquainted. You can't trust just because they're on television doesn't mean that they are in the Lord. Paul says, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables did you know that they will begin to believe stories mary appearing magically all over the world they will begin to believe in secret raptures and tribulation forces that will exist afterwards did you know that they would begin to believe fiction over scripture fables but watch thou in all things 
He's speaking to the last generation now. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of your ministry. Each of us ought to have a ministry. Even if on your job, it's simply to pray for those who you see are in trouble. All of us ought to have a ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, Paul says. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. I like that. Paul is confident in his salvation. Henceforth, he says, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Oh, I want to submit to you today that there's a crown waiting for you. God's got a crown of righteousness waiting for you. So important is this crown that Jesus himself in Revelation says that he's speaking to one of the seven churches. He says, beware lest another man take your crown. Paul says, I've got my crown. Paul knew in that dungeon floor that at any moment they could walk in and have him put to death. But Paul was no longer afraid of death. Paul understood that he and God had, had become so uh, in, in, enmeshed in relationship and, and, and in covenant that God had Paul taken care of. And I tell you that still today, God still takes care of his own. One of the verses of the scripture that came, became dear to me when my mother died last year. The verse in the Old Testament that says, precious. In the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Will you keep your crown? In these last days, are you going to make sure that when you get to heaven or when you come to death, that heaven will be where you're going? That on that sea of glass, Jesus will, you will be in that line and Jesus will personally place that crown on your head. You see, there won't be any more time. You won't mind standing in line then. You'll wait your turn singing the praises of God. Hallelujah, Hosanna in the highest. You'll have no problem shouting and praising God for the victory, for for making you, uh, taking you out of this world and making you over. That crown will be sat down on your head. Jesus places that crown upon your head stand back as a crowd and take our crowns and cry unworthy are we we'll take that crown and throw it at the feet of Jesus as every head is bowed and every eye is closed Father God we thank you for you are such a wonderful and worthy God but as we look at 2nd Timothy Lord as we look at the book that you wrote to Timothy to prepare him for the end Lord was also written for our, our admonition father god let us heed the words of scripture let us follow these truths father god we would not be people who are afraid lord that we would be good soldiers that we would recognize deception and that we would make the scripture our only rule of living bless restoration lord Bless the leaders of restoration. 
And Lord, prepare the hearts of your people for what will be preached over the next few weeks. And Lord, someone would accept their crown. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.